Hi, I'm Jim Ginsberg. Welcome to Sadie Records Classical Chicago Podcast. Every time we release a new album on Sadie Records, we have a podcast. This time, we're here to celebrate the release of Project W, music by diverse women composers with the Chicago Sinfonietta and conductor Mayan Chen. It's a program, all women composers, for newly commissioned works as well as a work by a historical Chicago composer we'll talk about a little later. But let's get right into it and introduce our guests on today's podcast. We have conductor Mayan Chen, music director of the Chicago Sinfonietta. Hello, thanks for having me. And composer Clarice Assad, who is one of the four newly commissioned composers on this album. Hey. All right, so let's get right into it. Man, how did this Project W come about? You know, when the Chicago Sinfonietta was planning 30th anniversary, we were brainstorming what would be a big project for us to champion. And given that the last program, Maestro Freeman literally handed the baton to me as I inherited his wonderful ensemble, it was a program featuring women composers. And we just thought, hey, perhaps that is the one minority group that we haven't really looked into and spent a lot of energy. And so right away, it was immediately from the staff, from the board, our audience, even Jim, when we sat down with you in brainstorming what's the possibility for the next disc with Sinfoniata, I think the woman theme seems to resonate really well. And so we thought maybe we just do a Project W for 30th anniversary. And voila, we really enjoy championing for women composers, which is still a neglected group in classical music. In fact, a recent survey found that less than 2% of the works programmed by American orchestras were by women composers. That's right. And in fact, the Sinfonietta got some nice press. And I think it was actually Crane Chicago Business that pointed out that in one of the concerts leading up to this project, Sinfonietta managed to program twice as many women composers as the Chicago Symphony had in, in the previous two years. Wow. <laughs> it, that's great. And also we learned nationwide, our Project W really put us number one in the country in terms of the percentage of women composers' work in our entire season last year. That's really terrific. Of course, we've worked in the past with the Chicago Sinfonietta music director, Paul Freeman, including on a project that was very personal to him, a three-volume series we called the African Heritage Symphonic Series that covered African-descended composers through the entire 20th century. How does this project, man, fit your personal mission as a musician? It's interesting how it all came together at the end because being a woman conductor myself, it's about 10% of women conductors in the country. And so for me to champion for another minority group that's even less percentage, less than 2%, it just seems to make a whole lot of sense. And it's really wonderful for me to get to champion my colleagues who are in the male-predominated field of composing. And the fact that it's the year of the woman, I think it's overdue that women's work be recognized in classical music or in composing or conducting. And so it's been a wonderful discovery journey for me. And if I could mention this, 
Jim, your dear mother, Ruth Ginsburg, has always been just a personal hero of mine. And for her work to really set the precedent for women in this country, I just feel so honored that we're a small part of trying to break that barrier. That was really nice to hear. Oh, I should also mention that we're releasing this in March, which is Women's History Month. That adds to the theme there. So to get to the program itself, let me ask how the repertoire was selected or more precisely how the Sinfonietta chose which composers to commission. You know, it was a team effort. We selected a lot of ideas from all of our constituencies. And personally, for example, Clarice has been on my radar since I've been a huge fan of your family's history. Since I heard the Asa brothers with Nadia's recording, this is decades ago. And so I wanted to find a chance to work with you, Clarice. And then we discovered Jesse Montgomery because Jesse also been affiliated with the Sphinx competition. And it's just very unique in terms of being African-American women, both great in violin and also composition. And Rena Esmel, which is a little bit unusual because we haven't done too much Indian influence music at all. But Rena and I got to work together in a commission by River Oaks Chamber Orchestra in 2013. And I thought it would be great since Chicago has a rather large Indian community that we include someone like Rena, who's trying to forge this very unique voice of Hindustani idiom with classical music. And Jennifer Higdon has always been a favorite, I think, also with SETI Records. Being a very dear friend from 10 years ago, I've gotten to know Jennifer in various roles, and it's just lovely to be able to champion her new work and being recorded on SETI Records. So that's sort of the, the gist of all the composers. And not to leave one probably in some way the most significant in terms of music history, Florence Beatrice Price, who became the first African-American woman in a country when Chicago Symphony premiered her symphony in E minor in 1933. And her work's sort of forgotten in the mainstream. And I accidentally stumbled her work called Dances in the Cambrakes when I was looking for a very specific instrumentation. And so, Jim, you might recall that I was convinced that we need to include her music since she really developed her music career here in Chicago and make music history with Chicago Symphony that we thought it's important to put her music on. Well, in fact, the Sinfonietta has a bit of a history with this piece, The Dances at the Cambrakes, because you've played it on numerous occasions before we ever thought about this album. Can you talk about how that came about? Yeah. Actually, I was looking for a specific piece that would fit in the pit with the Memphis Symphony for a ballet project. And it was Bernstein's pieces that we're trying to perform. Like, I stay up, search internet overnight, and stumble this piece that I couldn't find any recordings that has the right instrumentation. And so I start to perform it and, and brought it to Chicago, Dances and the Kimbrakes, written at the end of her life, 1953. And right after her death, her childhood friend, William Grant Still, who we consider the dean of African-American music, orchestrated. Even though I think she would have been very capable of orchestrating it herself, but she wrote the piece for piano with very authentic 
African rhythm. If you listen to the piece, you will think that's very ragtime, Joplin-like. It's been a favorite piece of mine, and so I brought it to Chicago. We perform it at various occasions. Just so thrilled that it's going to make its orchestra commercial CD debut with SETI Records. So now people can find out what great pieces that these little dances are. And as you said, Florence Price really is a very important figure in Chicago's music history as an African-American composer. As you mentioned, first work to have a piece championed by a major American orchestra, which was the Chicago Symphony, also the teacher of Margaret Bonds, another important composer. And I have to note that another recent release on CD, Songs from Chicago with Thomas Hampson includes two of Price's songs. Can you talk a little bit about how this piece sets things up on the album, how it sets the table for the commissions that come after it? We just thought that we would use the dance as sort of a common theme, and not that every composer has to write according to the dances that inspire them, but it just seems to make sense with Jennifer's dance card for strings. And then when we approached Clarice, and she was even more brave in allowing us to bring a dance troupe to her new world premiere piece, it's always tricky to put something on top of a world commission piece. And in Jessie's Montgomery's piece, Coincident Dance, she happened to use New York as a backdrop. You can be in New York City and encountering Latin jazz, samba, all these wonderful idioms all colliding with each other uh, or at the same time. And with Rina Ismail's piece, is really utilizing the Hindustani raga in the backbone of the piece and then really building almost like a dance theme for the strings as well. All right, well, let's have some music on this podcast. We'll start with a movement from Florence Price's Dances in the Cambrake, says orchestrated by William Grant Still. It's a piece in three movements, three dances, titled Nimble Feet, Tropical Noon, and the third, which is the one we're about to hear, is titled Silk Hat and Walking Cane. Anything special you want to say about this piece? Well, you know, I wish I could call her up and ask her about the pieces, but I think these are just wonderful pieces that reference, you know, people ask me, cane breaks. I guess it's a cane you use. And so the seal cat and the walking cane is just a lovely movement of just swinging rhythm and beautiful melody. Well, let's hear it now with the Chicago Sinfonietta, conducted by Mayan Chen from Sadie Records' new release, Project W.
That was Silk Hat and Walking Cane, the third movement or third dance from Chicago composer Florence Price's 1953 piece, Dances in the Cane Breaks, is orchestrated by none other than William Grant Still. We heard it performed by the Chicago Symphonietta, conducted by Mayan Chen from our new release for March 2019, Project W, music by diverse women composers uh, with the Chicago Symphonietta. Let's talk to one of those diverse women composers right now. The second piece on the album is by the Chicago-based Brazilian native Clarissa Saad, who is, by the way, wearing the most wonderfully colorful jacket. Obviously, you can't hear it on a podcast, but if you go to our blog, there should be a nice picture. So anyway, welcome, Clarice. What was it like to get this commission from the Chicago Symphonietta? Well, I was thrilled, of course, to get this commission from the Chicago Symphonietta. For many reasons. One, because I love the orchestra. Second, because I love what they stand for. And at the same time, I was moving back to Chicago from New York after 15 years. So it was like a welcome back home, Clarice. (laughs) So actually, I could talk about that a little bit about your travels or your different home bases, because obviously you were born in Brazil, right? Yes. So you were in Chicago, New York, and then Chicago again? Actually, it was Chicago. I was Brazil, then I lived in France. Then I came and then lived in Boston, then Chicago, Ann Arbor, New York, and now I'm back in Chicago. And you've been back since how long now? Two years. Two years. Well, it was right about the time when we had this project. And, of course, your parents are based here. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about them? Well, my father, Sergio Assad, and his wife, Angela, they have been based here for a long time. Angela has been based here since the 80s. She's now the dean of the physical sciences at the University of Chicago. So she is really rooted here. And that means we have friends and family. It feels like home. I think your father is somewhat well-known, too. You want to say a few words? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's like a hero to me. And the reason why I became a musician, he is a classical guitarist, composer, has been playing with his brother, Odair Assad, for over 50 years now. That's a pretty long career of uh, musicians. I've never heard of anybody playing for that long, you know, professionally. And they communicate almost telepathically when they play. So it's pretty intense. Excellent. The name of your piece, Sin Fronteras, I hope I'm pronouncing that decently, translates, I believe, to without borders. How does that concept get expressed in the music? Well, the way I was thinking about this piece was to honor music from the Americas. So because I am from South America, I was thinking definitely I'm going to use Brazilian music here. But there's all the music from Latin America and Central America and North America that I'd like to merge. That's why it's called Without Borders. I think music has the power to cross these borders in a very friendly way. And the piece was thought out with musicians and dancers in mind because I was thinking of these melodic passages that repeat throughout the music, but they are in disguise. Like sometimes they sound like they're in the jazz idiom. Next time they sound like they are in Mexico or Caribbean. But it's the same idea. It's like people coming together, clashing, but eventually getting along and walking away towards harmony. And how does this concept fit the idea of Project W for you? I think that what was in my mind at the time was definitely the idea of diversity. With the piece, I was trying to convey that. We have so much music that we put in so many different categories, but why, you know? The same melody can work in all these different genres just as well. And I think that resonated, at least in my mind, with the mission of Project W. 
So now you mentioned the South and Latin and even Caribbean music traditions that influence or permeate this piece. Are those the musical traditions that have influenced you the most as a composer, or if not, which others have also informed your music? I think they have influenced me, of course, because I am Brazilian, number one, and I've been living here for 20 years, so that holds true. But also, as you said, I come from a family of musicians who play classical music, so I was also very much into that world. I did not really bring that language into this piece. I was trying to stay more in the characterist idea of the archetypes of what these music sound like because they never go old like it's different in pop music that you know in 10 years from now it's going to sound like it's a decade old but this music stays the same because it's so picturesque. Man alluded to the use of dancers in the live performance I assume the piece can be done either way of course we don't have any dancers on the album Uh, (laughs) can you just talk a little bit about how that works in performance? Well, I think it worked beautifully. I I liked it. I don't know how it was for you guys, like, seeing from the outside, but to me it made a lot of sense because that's how I knew it was going to be in the beginning. And it was the first time I worked with a choreographer and exchanged ideas about what it could be. So for me that was very exciting. Wonderful. So, man, this piece, Sin Fronteras, being a dance piece, changes meters quite often. Was this particularly challenging for the orchestra? And if so, how did you meet those challenges? You know, as I always like to have composers at our rehearsals, Clarice was so helpful in terms of getting her piece across. You know, ultimately, I always tell the musicians, get in the groove. You know, (laughs) it's hard to count, obviously, if you have strange mixed meters. It's hard to get in the mindset of the composer. But I will assume, Clarice, when you conceive of a passage, Mm -hmm. you don't really see the mixed meter first, right? You hear the sound and then trying to put it as make sense as it can be for the musicians, mm-hmm. as a roadmap. So for us, it's going back to when you conceive of that idea, how you sing it, how you feel it, and we'll try to recreate it. Yeah, it's exactly what he said. It's um, At least that's not how I compose them. People compose like that. They think this is going to mm-hmm. be like that in this meter, and I transcribe whatever it is that is going on in my head at the time. <laughs> and then that's usually difficult for people who are reading it. Right, because right. they didn't come up with it. Right. I was just going to ask uh, how helpful Clarice was uh, in the rehearsals and the work up to the concerts and recording, but you've answered that. Were there any other aspects of the piece that required special attention from your point of view? I would just say that Clarice piece, I, I applaud you for creating something. Once you hear it, it's like catchy. It's like you can't, you'll be humming it for days. That's how we felt learning the piece. And even though it was complicated for me to have to watch out for what the dancers need, but ultimately I'm so grateful for this recording because it really puts out their incredible works by women. And Clarice, you have outdone yourself. It was really fun commission for us. I remember the musicians feeling excited about this project W. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) So, uh, Clarice, before we play an excerpt of the piece, what would you like listeners especially to take away from hearing it? Well, as you just said, you know, it is a fun, lively piece. And something that to keep in mind is that music really has absolutely no borders. And just feel it and dance with it. 
Well, with that sentiment in mind, let's hear an excerpt of Sin Fronteras with Mayan Chen conducting the Chicago Sinfonietta, new work by Clarissa Saad. just heard an excerpt from Sin Fronteras by Clarissa Saad as performed on this podcast and on the new recording, Project W, by the Chicago Sinfonietta, conducted by Mayan Chen. It's an album that includes newly commissioned works by four contemporary composers. And the next one is the African-American composer and violinist Jesse Montgomery. Her piece has an interesting title, title is Coincident Dances. Man, how is that concept of coincident dances realized in Jesse's piece? It's sections by different musical genre, and they may coincide with each other. For example, the piece starts with a jazz clap swinging a bass solo, and then you, you might have Miles Davis influence in the leading section. On top of that, then Jesse puts an English consort sort of a more of a Baroque idea. It was interesting talking to her and realizing that what these little motifs are about and trying to bring the authentic feeling of each musical genre as they coincide with each other. It's living in New York City like she does and really just hearing all this different cultural influences clashing with each other in a beautiful way. And so that's what we're trying to portray in her piece. 
And were there any special challenges in bringing off all these different musics in one piece? Yes, there is a particular section. I remember, how do we, how, <laughs> like, how does it sound? I literally have to ask her to sing to me because it was what you hear and what you see on the page are different. Of course, and I understand why she wrote the way it was. That was the only possible reasonable way. But it was not until I hear her sing the rhythm, which is very challenging. And I had to literally repeat that to the orchestra because Jesse wasn't able to be with us until the later part of the rehearsal. It was the thrill, similar to Clarice's piece, when we get something right, right? When I see the biggest smile on the composer's face. That's when I know we got it. It's wonderful for us to be able to realize the musical babies created by these women. As I remember Jennifer Hickton said, the piece is never born until you hear it live because that's when you let go of your baby. That's the way it's going to have its own life after the premiere. It's been fun discovery for me, working with very diverse group of women each of you have a little different style in working, but for me, it's so fun. Does this, in your experience, happen often with contemporary music where what's uh, on the page may not be entirely self-explanatory? Yes, I have found that the best sources is to have the creator there, and that's why sometimes what we receive on the music is just a roadmap of how things are put together, but I always love the chance of the composer being there and singing a certain phrase or just tapping certain rhythm and or hearing Rina, for example, singing the ragas that led to us, led to me really convincingly saying, Rina, we got to have you sing at the concert and actually leading to her singing being included in the recording because mm. I think it just showed a little bit different style in such an authentic way that when you listen to the piece that you get a deeper understanding. Well, before we get to that one, let's hear an excerpt from Coincident Dances by Jesse Montgomery as performed by the Chicago Sinfonietta, Man Chen conducting on the new CD release, Project W. <laughs> Thank you. 
We just heard an excerpt from Coincident Dances by Jesse Montgomery, African-American composer and violinist, one of four women composers newly commissioned for this Project W release with the Chicago Sinfonietta and Mayan Chen on Sadie Records. And by the way, you can purchase this album and all of our albums on the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. Of course, you can also find it anywhere else recordings are sold, whether it be Amazon or Archive Music or streamed on Spotify or the many other sites, including high-definition sites for our higher-quality audio versions of the album. Many ways you can get this, and I certainly hope you will because it's a unique program. And speaking of which, it's also a very diverse program. We've heard already from a Brazilian-American composer, an African-American composer, all of whom happen to be women. And the next piece is by an Indian-American composer. It's also, I just realized, the one piece that's song-based instead of dance-based. And in fact, this is Rena Esmail's piece titled Hashtag Me Too, and we'll get into that in a moment. But it derives from a sung melody that she composed in a traditional Hindustani or North Indian form called a bandish. The full title that she gave that piece is, I hope I pronounced this right, is Charukeshi Bandish. And Charukeshi refers to a South Indian raga or scale on which it's based. So you have a North Indian form, but a South Indian raga. Before we actually talk about the piece she composed based on this, let's actually hear the bandish. So this is... The composer, as the man Chen mentioned earlier, Rina Esmail, singing Cherokeshi Bandish, supported by members of the Chicago Sinfonietta. Oh, 
We just heard Charukeshi Bandish, a melody composed by and sung by composer Rina Esmail. It became the basis of her full orchestral piece, Hashtag Me Too, that we'll hear in a moment. And that was the composer's singing, supported by members of the Chicago Sinfonietta. And we included this on the album because, as Man Chen mentioned, to introduce the piece in concert, they did just this, Rina singing her own piece. And I realized that it's really helpful to the listener to hear the melody on which the larger piece is then based because the melody is often disguised in various ways. So it really helps to have that in your ear before you listen to the whole piece. So let's talk about that now, Mayan. How exactly is this bandish used in the orchestral piece that Rena titled Hashtag Me Too? Well, it's used first in the woodwinds and the brass, where for me, this raga is almost like an eagle soaring above a sky. It's literally this rhythmless kind of a soaring without constraint of rhythm. Really beautiful. And so when we first play it, obviously the musician was reading off page and trying to count the triplet against the quarter note and whatnot. And it just doesn't achieve the right kind of feel until I said, Rina, sing us what you're trying to write. And once she has sung that, then the whole orchestra get it. It's like, okay, I understand. It's not just a triplet against something. It's this feel. And we're trying to reproduce. The string has it later as well. And so literally, we shared her singing to the rest of the orchestra, I believe it was between the dress rehearsal and the performances. And it was so helpful for the musicians to get into a different world because, you know, the Indian heritage, I don't know much about Brazilian music, Clarice sitting next to me, but the Indian heritage is a lot by oral tradition. It's not about notation. And sometimes the intonation is hard for us. Every pitch has like three pitches in it. They have the microtone that you learn to sing sort of out of tune from the Western view. But for them, it was normal. And I remember taking a non-Western music course in my music training. And when you want to purposely sing out of tune, it is so hard. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing that she was able to open a different world for us. The rhythm in here, you know, she has a very personal experience and wanted to ask us if it's okay for us to change the title to hashtag Me Too. We were so supportive of it because this is her own journey. And in fact, I think writing this piece was almost a healing process for her. The piece is very unique, I have to say. It's really forged that impossible place of East meets West. And this is the case of Hindustani music with orchestra. A unique method used in the piece that also connects to Clarice's piece. Rina wanted the women in the orchestra to start singing this raga or to create a drone, which is almost like a core that just sustain over time. And she wanted the women in the sinfoniata to start singing during the year they joined the orchestra. And at first, you know, everybody was like, I'm not meant to be a singer. But, you know, after s- several times of doing it, the women really enjoyed doing it. And I think this is interesting how the composers are finding 
new voices, new colors to add to the orchestra pieces. So Clarice, in your piece, I think you added the chattering effect at one point. That was really fun for our musicians also, because anytime you put them a little bit outside their box, <laughs> they're always going to be like deer in the headlights. But then when you give them the permission to have fun, then it becomes such memorable experience. Alex, on in fact, that's the excerpt I'm planning to play in a moment is the women's voices section of the piece because it really is unique. But before we get to that, because you alluded to the change in name of the piece and because it actually related to experiences, of course, the Me Too movement was flourishing right around the time she's writing this piece, or at least starting to. And according to the composer, it made her reflect on her own experiences, very unfortunate experiences in her life. In fact, she talks about it in the recording booklet, so I'd like to read that statement as sort of a setup before we get to the music. So Rena writes, The harm itself happened when I was in high school and college, but I only began to admit it even to myself in 2015 when I first wrote honestly about it in words. And one of the first things I put in this writing was that I was hoping at some point that I could express these emotions which were still so raw at this point in an orchestral work. And this piece, Me Too, written almost three years later, is in fact that work. I want to read also from the program notes by Don Masica, who is a former marketing director for the Chicago Sinfonietta. She talks about this moment where the music comes right out of the most violent section of the piece, and then the music suddenly just comes to a halt. I interpret that perhaps as the attempt to silence certain voices. And then after a silence, as you said, the women musicians of the Sinfonietta begin singing one by one. And then over this comes the oboe playing the raga or bandish melody. And it's such an affecting moment in the piece. I wanted to ask how this concept of women's voices and women speaking up, how they're embedded in the piece beyond just this section, both figuratively and literally for you. You know, the Project W basically occupy a very important subscription for us in March in the Month of Women uh, during our 30th anniversary. And so the fact that Rena thought to include the women voices basically was already part of what we started to do as an organization is to honor the voices of our women. And in fact, on this particular program, we were going to include another piece by woman composer, Becoming Who I Am, literally will feature our woman principles in the strings. And later we did do the piece by Mary Kayujim at our Millennium Park concert later. Because of the recording, we couldn't fit everything into that program. The women in our orchestra, a different perspective of allowing them to come forward with their contribution even more loudly, if you will. We have had almost equal percentage in our orchestra. And now if you look at most American orchestras, you know, women occupy a large percentage. And so it's no longer such a breaking story. However, it is time for us to allow the voices of the women, whether it's in composition or in our project inclusion uh, program, uh, to allow the voices of the women to come forward even more. I was just thinking that these days, yes, any American orchestra could 
do this piece, including this section that we're about to hear. Might still be a while before the Vienna Philharmonic could take it on. That's right. <laughs> the drone might be very thin. <laughs> but uh, let's hear a portion of the piece, including the Women's Voices section. This is Hashtag Me Too by Rena Esmail, as performed, and in this case, including sung by the Chicago Sinfonietta, conducted by Mayan Chen from Project W, music by diverse women composers on Sadie Records. We've just heard an excerpt from a new piece by Indian-American composer Rena Esmail titled Hashtag Me Too. You heard in that excerpt the women members of the Chicago Sinfonietta literally making their voices heard. So the last three pieces were by young American women composers. The last piece is by a much more established American woman composer, Jennifer Higdon. So what was your experience, man, working with these different composers at different stages of their careers? It's wonderful for us to get into their sonic world. Each one of them has their unique voice, influenced by 
the cultures they grew up in. And all these individual beautiful women were able to forge their own true identity out of beautiful, diverse backgrounds, whatever it was for them. And so it just showed that diversity is so powerful in terms of making our society stronger and more beautiful. And the fact that Chicago Sinfonietta was founded to embrace diversity and inclusion without going too much at it, you know that it's just a beautiful mission that we get to champion in this day and age where diversity is at the forefront of our country's discussions and topic. And I will only like to say that it's testimony for the work of Chicago Sinfoniata and my own personal experience with these wonderful women that diversity and inclusion in our own personal role will only make us stronger and not the other way around. I've learned so much in appreciating, for example, the Brazilian music, the Latin American music that it's in Clarice and in Jesse's piece. And in fact, I've just fallen in love with samba and all these different art forms. It wanted me to hear more of it. I go and look for more music that has those cultural influences. Rina's Indian heritage has made me appreciate different beauty. I've grew up playing Beethoven, Brahms, and Tchaikovsky, and not to say those are not great masters, but oftentimes, if our world are enlarged to appreciate other art form, other masters, master works, then our life, our artistry can only be stronger and more in- enriched. And so I feel the Sinfoniata as an organization was totally blessed through Project W. We have had incredible community support. We have had a board member who brought to us 150 people in her women executive leadership program that have never set foot in a concert hall. Mm. And they were in our Project W program in March. We thought we were doing art for art's sake. I mean, if you hear the four women composers we had on the program, Florence Price, Jennifer Higdon was probably the most recognizable, Rina Ismail, and then the first symphonic composer in Croatia, her name is Dora Pajecevic. If you see these four names on the program, <laughs> and any music, my music colleague would be like, oh my gosh, I hope they get any audience to come. <laughs> and in fact, people came. It was a very cold, bitter night in Chicago. And March could still be very cold. I was there. And people came. Well, thank you, Clarice, <laughs> for coming and then be a support of it. And, you know, these 150 people who never set foot in a concert hall came because of Project W. So we were so touched by the community's support and so touched by incredible support from SETI Records. I mean, there's just not that many recording companies around and this level of commitment and quality and for us to have the backing of you guys from day one. Yes, let's go and champion for women composers. I can only thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, I thank you for programming music like that. Uh, in fact, what was the name of the Croatian composer again? Dora Pejecevic. Yeah, people should look her up. If you like Bruckner, you will love her symphony. It's yeah. such a terrific piece. But now let me ask Clarice, what was it like for you working with Mayan and the Sinfonietta? 
I really loved working with Mayen because she's a lot of fun. She's very serious and she can also be very funny and open to, as we were talking about before, having the composer come on stage and share their thoughts with the orchestra and not have her to be like the only vessel through which the information goes out. So this is really nice, a nice thing to do. Thank you so much for that. I remember, you know, those passages that required for musicians to either sing or do mouth sounds. They were important for me to go up there and show people how to make them. Otherwise, it just looks like a bunch of weird things on a page. Moving on to the last piece, Jennifer Higdon is one of the most celebrated composers in the world, male or female. Man, was it any different working with her on her piece than working on the pieces by the other composers on this album? Well, the only difference for me is that I have known Jennifer for 10 years going into doing Dance Card. I assisted her in her recording with Atlanta Symphony, The Singing Room, featuring Jennifer Cole. A Sadie Records artist. Exactly. (laughs) And I've gotten to know both artists since then. I was just very fortunate to be assistant conductor with the Atlanta Symphony and literally being a help in the recording booth for that recording. And so Jennifer, for me, has been a dear friend. She's so famous and well-known. In fact, Literally, when people think of Jennifer Higdon, we don't think of her as a woman composer. We just think of her as an iconic American living composer. And that's what I love about what Jennifer has stands for. And yet, when you get to know her, she's so down to earth. She's just a wonderful colleague, uh, the best personality I could ever hope for in terms of a, a famous colleague. And so when she came to our rehearsals, I think I saw our musicians feeling very blessed that Jennifer took her time out of her busy schedule to be with us, even though she could only be with us for two days. But being able to tell us, okay, guys, this passage, I was thinking about this, or here, please feel free to do this. It was wonderful. Clarice has said it was actually an open kind of working relationship. It wasn't like, okay, there's Jennifer, and we have to do everything she says. It was more, let's make the best out of my piece together. It was wonderful that every composer in this project has been very collaborative. Well, as the title implies, Dance Card, the piece is also very dance-based, like some of the other works on the album, and includes things like mixed meter passages. So were there special rhythmic or other challenges of her piece? And if so, how did you conquer them? You know, Jennifer's piece is never easy. I've conducted Jennifer's piece, uh, premiere her Blue Cathedral in Sweden and many other countries. That's why I love about Jennifer's piece. It challenges your musicianship. And there is what I call the Jennifer eighth note. It's eighth note you play with energy, and yet it's not Stravinsky kind of aggressiveness. And so it's really getting into the sonic world of Jennifer in her dance card. And the five movements are so fun. There are three sort of fast movements, two slow movements. And one of the slow movements was written in honor of her father, who actually passed away because during a blizzard, 
he was trying to help a mailman whose truck was stuck in the snow, and he was trying to help dig out the truck with the mailman, and I believe had a heart attack. And so mm. it was just stories like that that makes you appreciate Jennifer and her music more because she's just a true artist and exemplary colleague. Well, let's hear one of the five movements of Dance Card now, and we're going to actually listen to the last movement, which is the last track on the disc. The title is Machina Rocus. Like many of Jennifer Higdon's pieces, the last movement title is a play on the first movement title. So the five movements are Raucous Rumpus, Breeze Serenade, Jumble Dance, Celestial Blue, and then Machina Rocus, which sounds a little bit like Raucous Rumpus, and in fact has similar rhythms to the first movement, as is often the case with Jennifer's pieces. So can you talk a little bit about this final movement? Yes. In this final dance, I think what's so fun for us is literally Jennifer referencing the energy of Tchaikovsky Serenade. And for me, even Bartok, in one of the last portion where the violin goes into a frenzy battle with each other, and it was just really fun for us to pull that out of the musicians and to know that they have the permission to just create as much energy with their string sounds. So let's hear that now. This is Machina Rocus, the final movement of Jennifer Higdon's dance card, Mayan Chen conducting the Chicago Sinfonietta. Thank you. 
We've just heard Machina Rocus, the final moment of Jennifer Higdon's five-moment piece, Dance Card, receiving its world premiere recording. In fact, all the works on this album, Project W, Music by Diverse Women Composers, are world premieres on record. And the album features the Chicago Symphonietta, conducted by Mayan Chen. Mayan, what would you like listeners to take away from listening to this whole program that we've now heard excerpts from? I would love everybody to continue the support for women composers, to continue support for SETI Records, because without these wonderful creators and recording companies that put their works out to the public, that we would be missing this wonderful world of creativity by women. I will urge everybody to continue to champion for all these composers you heard on the recording and continue to champion for SETI Records, who has championed for Chicago artists. It's just incredible that we have such a resource, such a platform for Chicago artists. That's really nice, man. In fact, I will note that if you go to the CD Records website, which is cdrecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, you can find tabs for women composers, because this is certainly not our first album championing the work of women composers, as well as tabs for music by black composers and, of course, Chicago composers, since that's such a big part of our mission. How did the audiences respond to the live concerts that comprise the repertoire for this recording? I would say amazing. I think people came without knowing exactly what the music was going to sound like, and I think people came away cheering. It was very comforting to know that we went out there, we thought we programmed art for art's sake, and yet it, it was responded with such enthusiasm. And so that showed us that we're doing something right and we'll continue to champion for women composers in the country. Excellent. Now, of course, uh, Chicago Symphony is not the only orchestra you've conducted or are a music director of. So how has your experience with the Sinfonietta been different from your tenures with other orchestras? Chicago Sinfonietta is a unique ensemble. It is literally a family. We come into each rehearsal giving each other an update of what we have been to. It's wonderful because that's the legacy Maestro Paul Freeman left us. It's really not just about the notes we play on the page. It's about the personal relationship and how we relate to each other will impact the sound we make for our audience. And so I treasure every moment I get to see my wonderful Sinfoniata family you have to be in it to feel the love. It's not like any other orchestras, and plus that we have the incredible mission of championing for diversity and inclusion. It can't get better than this. So I should also ask, because our previous album with the Sinfonietta, Delights and Dances, was your debut as a conductor on recording. Uh, what kind of a reception did you get for that? Wonderful reception. I think people were surprised to find they're actually repertoire they could consider for string quartet and orchestra. Because that album also features the Harlem String Quartet. Right. There's just not that many pieces that people can tap into with string quartet, and they could feature a set string quartet like Harlem, or they could feature their own string principles. So I think we did a big favor of creating some repertoire and showcasing some that was never recorded, and so it was really wonderful. And in fact, we should note there's a piece by contemporary composer Michael Abels on that album, as well as a wonderful arrangement of 
Bernstein's Symphonic Dances from West Side Story for string quartet and orchestra as well on that album. But looking forward now, man, what's coming up for you? Well, I'll be on tour in Scandinavia, first with the Malmö Symphony, and then Seven City Tour with the Copenhagen Philharmonic. It's my first time that I'll miss the Dr. King Tribute Concert in Chicago, but it's important that I bring my champion for women uh, worldwide. I'm actually championing for Jennifer's piece and many other women composers' piece in Scandinavia. Stacy Garrett's piece ah, will be wonderful um, Chicago composer. Yeah, exactly. And so one of these days, Clarice, I'll bring your work to other parts of the world. We can make known of the wonderful works composed by these wonderful women. That's really wonderful, man. And since you mentioned Clarice. Clarice, the month before we release Project W, February, Sadie will have come out with the full album debut of the amazing young violist Matthew Lipman, and that recording just happens to include a piece that he commissioned from you titled Metamorphose. Can you talk uh, about that work and how that commission came about? Matt is an incredible musician, young, vibrant, so gifted, And he approached me to write a piece that was one of the hardest pieces I ever had to write because it was an homage to his mom, who passed away a few years ago. And they were extraordinarily close. And how are you going to compose a piece for somebody you don't know and somebody you're just meeting? I had really a difficult time. I had to take my time to get to know him and do it right and do the right thing. So I came up with an idea of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, pretty much going through his grief and release of that grief through happiness again, by finding peace with the passing of his mom. And we became so close. We are great friends. He's coming over tomorrow <laughs> for a visit. I went and I heard them perform this piece live in New York so I could be there for them. And I'm just really grateful for this opportunity and grateful to you too, Jim, for having this be a possibility for all of us. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Besides that work, which will be new on album by the time this podcast comes out, what else is coming up for you, both as a performer, and we should talk a little bit about your performing career, as well as what pieces you're currently working on as a composer? I mean, this is like, a, I'm calling it a miracle year. I have a world premiere every month of 2019. That hey. is amazing. That is insane. <laughs> It's insane. It's good insanity. I love it. <laughs> I'm really happy. Three of them are orchestral works, so I'll be working with the Boston Youth Symphony, with Ben Zender. He's taking the piece to Brazil and touring it there. I'm working with Orquestra Sinfonica de São Paulo, with Espe, but with Marion again, and they're going to take that on tour. And the other piece is going to be fun because I have to write a piece for orchestra and audience members. <laughs> and how does that work? That's the thing. <laughs> That's the thing. I'm going to be conducting the audience, and the conductor will be conducting the, the orchestra. And, of course, uh, that's taking place at a place where we can actually do things like that. So, uh, this, this sounds like a piece that might have young people's concert potentials. But maybe. I think so. It is a family weekend concert, so we're going with that, and it's based on stories. So it's going to be a lot of fun. But they're all very different projects, and I'm so thrilled. And then as a performer... As a performer, I'm trying to put together a project with my father and the third coast percussion, which I'm working really hard on right now and making it work, hopefully, with you. And in fact, 
We are calling this whole project archetypes and having crazy ideas and bringing it together as a group. Wonderful. And finally, I'd like to end Sadie's Classical Chicago podcast with a question to both of you. You can choose what order to answer in. What makes the Chicago music scene special for each of you? The Chicago scene is just amazing. I've always been stunned by how much richest you can get almost everything here. And it's the best of the world. And I have a personal connection to Chicago, if I could share. I grew up under the baton of Henry Mazur, who was the associate conductor of Chicago Symphony under Fritz Reiner. And so it was just meant to be that I ended up in Chicago. I never thought it's possible, but now I'm here. I am so proud to be a Chicagoan. And Clarice, uh, now having lived in Chicago and returned to Chicago, what gets you coming back? Well, Chicago is like home for me now, so much more than Rio was. And that's crazy, I think, because I was born there. But (laughs) the music scene here is better than ever, I think, especially because I was here going to college 20 years ago, and it was not nearly as vibrant as it is today. And I really love to see where it's going. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. This has been really fun, entertaining podcast in support of a really fun and entertaining recording. Thank, thank you, you so for much. Having thank us. You.